Hello and welcome to the first official episode of the Protest Coverage Podcast. I'm Tom Ella, the Managing Editor. This week you'll hear from Editor-in-Chief Kevin Xavier and I as we sit down with D. Rec Ingram, one of the co-founders of New York City activist group Warriors in the Garden. If you've heard D-Rec's name in the news lately, it's likely because he live-streamed a five-hour NYPD raid of his apartment last month. Approximately 50 officers shut down his entire block, deploying dogs, a helicopter, and even a drone, but apparently had no arrest warrant. We got his perspective on the whole experience, his subsequent call for unity among activist groups, and so much more. Hope you all enjoy. D-Rec, thanks for taking the time to chat with us on this first real episode of NYC PC podcast. So I really wanted to start out and kind of let people know who you are. You are one of the founders of Warriors in the Garden. Can you tell me a bit more about how you got involved? So protesting in general, I have been protesting since 2014. I went to college in St. Louis, Missouri. I have family that lives there. I was living approximately 10 minutes away from Ferguson where uh, Michael Brown was killed. And I started in the Ferguson protest. And then a year later, um, I lost a friend, another activist, in a situation similar to what happened to me with the St. Louis Police Department shooting my friend on his property, and they didn't have a warrant. So yeah, that that started my, um, I guess, my, my activist career. I met the Warriors the first day, the George Floyd protesting in New York City. Um, some of us had slightly known each other from the activist circle, but we instantly all connected because um, we like to make a joke that we were the loudest there. Because we really, we, a lot of us, yeah, we didn't know each other, but we were we just kind of all assumed roles because, yeah, we all kind of congregated in the front. We were all kind of like trying to figure out logistics, messaging, all of this as we were marching. So we started a group chat and we became fast friends from there. And uh, we decided to start Warriors in the Garden and that we had a similar mission and that we wanted to, to fight police brutality and every systemic and oppressive system in New York City together and that we were stronger together. Yeah, I remember talking recently to Joseph, one of the other founders, and he mentioned that early on, especially <laughs> the entire yeah, stretch. We have three Josephs, so Canaris, Cochran. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I remember he, he was saying, like, at the start, it was really just this kind of fast, almost like slapdash, as, as like everything was at the start of just, okay, we're all people that are in the front. We are kind of the most vocal so like, you, 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 let's go. What do we want to protest? Okay, 50A, all right, let's protest this for, you know, two weeks until it gets repealed. And that was the whole strategy from the start. So I, I'm really curious, like, how did this evolve into, like, the organization it is today? Because now it is much bigger. It's, it's, I mean, it's obviously much more well-known. You guys have made national news. There's been profiles. Going from, like, the first day of these protests to now, I mean, that's, there's been an evolution. Yes, it's grown, it's changed. I believe we're a lot more organized and strategic now. Um, a lot of people don't know the work that goes in on the back end. There's several people, dozens of people that are a part of our organization that necessarily don't get acknowledged and they don't necessarily want to be. We have a whole technology department. We have a legislative and research department. We have an education department. Some of us just happen to be in the, I, I happen to be on the communications team that does like all of our press releases, uh, you know, marketing and um, social media. So we get a little bit more of a spotlight, but there's a lot of work that goes to this on the back end. Everything from operations to logistical teams to people that coordinate with bikers and collaborations with other groups and partnerships. 
So, yeah, <laughs> we have a we have a budgetary committee. All kind like all it's kind of stuff. Time. Sorry. Make no. sure to drink water. <laughs> That's okay. Make sure you're hydrated. <laughs> I know. I have to remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We definitely want to discuss the incident where the police showed up to mm-hmm. apprehend you. I believe it was Friday, August the 7th. Can we just start with you telling your experience from the moment you woke up that day, and then we can back up and talk a little bit more about what led up to it. So, yeah, I woke up to knocks at my door, the doorbell being rang. The gentleman that knocked on my door looked familiar, so I kind of felt a little comfortable, so I cracked the door. I still have my kind of deadbolt chain up. And he told me he had a warrant for my arrest. I asked him to slide it under the door, who he was with, blah, blah, blah. Um, he said he would do so. I went and immediately called some of my friends from the group. They told me that I needed to tell everyone in our group because this was scary. My my initial reaction was just to wait it out. And if I act mm-hmm. like just calmly that they would go away. Was it, was it just the one person at that point? Yeah, it was only one person at that point. Okay. So I felt like they would knock for a while. If they had a warrant, they would slide it under. If they didn't, they would just, you know, eventually go away. But um, that wasn't the case. I started live streaming. I went back to the door, requested it again, and that's when they admitted that they didn't have a warrant, but they had probable cause for my arrest. And that's when their tone changed as well, and they became a little bit more forceful and direct. And then more officers and officials showed up. It became, it became, it escalated quite quickly. It became more scary after that. Had they told you at this point why they were trying to arrest you? They said they didn't even know. There was just an IC card and that I need, that I needed to be questioned. I'm sorry, what's an IC card? So an IC card means that there's an open investigation. Mm -hmm. And pretty much like if you're not in your home, they have right to like arrest you and, and question you based on that open case. It's a loophole into Mm -hmm. pretty much the Fourth Amendment. Okay, so they didn't tell you what the alleged probable cause was at that time, though? No, and they said that, like, some of the officers said they didn't even know. I guess what prompted you to start live streaming as well? People in my group told me to, and... Did you expect it to ramp up in the the way that it did? Yeah. I did not want it to be a big deal. I I don't like making, like, the movement or stuff about me. I thought it was just... I. My intuition was, like, they were going to go away. I didn't want to make it that big of a deal, but I'm kind of glad I did because it brought, I I think it might be, our platform might be what saved me. If that many people were watching, I don't know what, you know, what could have happened. It amplified my voice, and I think that of the whole Black Lives Matter movement in New York City. It also eventually brought attention a lot of other stuff, like facial recognition, false reporting, Stuff like that. My lawyer and other people are starting to, to research and look into as well. If we could back up just a minute, Direk, can you give us some more information about things that led up to that? You've mentioned publicly often in print and on your live stream that day that surveillance of you as a person, this was nothing new prior to August 7th. Can you talk about some of the surveillance that you've experienced while you're out there in the field prior? Prior to this, I worked in property development. I had a whole nother apartment. This one I kind of like Airbnb'd out. That apartment got broken into. It was really bizarre because like the only things that were taken were like electronics as well as like warriors related and protest materials, which was bizarre. Made official police report about that. Um, And then finally, um, a week prior to this incident, an officer knocked on my door again. I eventually answered. He 
gave me his business card. It was the same business card of the guy that came on August 7th. And he told me that my mom was looking for me. That happened to be true because my parents did kind of missing person saying, but like a welfare check. Gotcha. I ignored them for two weeks. What was the effect of, of this surveillance on you? How did that make you feel? Like Anxious, I guess. Like, just unjustifiable paranoia, and there's justifiable. That was mm-hmm. definitely justifiable paranoia. Yeah, it just makes you feel anxious, or, you know, you don't know exactly what's going on or what's being monitored. We've had security breaches on all of our social media, as well as our emails, where we've had to get tech experts and encryption done. We've had people in New York City, as well as, like, outside states try to log into all of our emails and social media platforms and stuff like that so it's it's from it's been from multiple angles can you tell me about what measures they used in in that incident well some of the measures i couldn't see so Mm -hmm. i can't necessarily confirm you all saw them and i Mm -hmm. didn't right so you would have a better idea of that to be honest but from my apartment i could see um, drones. I could hear helicopters. I've never, I didn't see them. Mm-hmm. Um, I could hear dogs scratching at my door and barking. I could not see them. Um, there were several officers in empty apartments across a courtyard and alleyway. Um, there was officers that climbed my fire escape. There was officers on the roof in the building next to me. There was officers with guns and what appeared to be like, they were like long angular guns. And then some had like their hands on their holsters. So I don't know if they were snipers or what, exactly what it was. But yeah, I could see approximately just 25 officers. From your vantage point? From my vantage point. And yeah. then I heard them. Our estimate was 40 to 50 officers. There was also a hostage negotiation team. Did you ever interact with any strategic response teams or... Hostage negotiation teams? Yeah, I did. They tapped my phone, so every time I called out towards the end, it went to them. What else? Uh, There was an African-American officer. Um, He was one of the ones that climbed my fire escape, and he tried to do this weird thing. There was really several weird tactics. Like, you call yourself a warrior, like they were quoting my social media. And then also there was a post of, like, the anniversary of my grandmother's death. And they were like, what would Dolores think? So that was that was a little scary. A lot going on at once. I was live streaming. I had all this going on around me. Could you repeat the question again? I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. We're, we're just trying to get a sense of what was being said in the interaction. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there was an African-American cop on my fire escape. And he tried to build a rapport with me. And he even said at one point, I'm black. You're black. You can trust me. At one point, he asked, like, can he come inside and just talk? Like, I'm like, no. <laughs> um, and then an hour later, he had, like, a cup of coffee. He's like, I've had so much coffee, I need to pee. Can you let me in? Be red. Come on, bro. And I was like, pee off the fire escape. Like, he was really <laughs> trying to, like, do this whole, like, I'm a good guy. Yeah. Thing. What can you tell us about your interaction with the NYPD and, you know, whatever you can tell us about the legal proceedings that have taken place since Friday, August the 7th to today's date? I had an arraignment. All of that is um, public information, so you can check that out. The charges have been lessened. They haven't done a discovery yet, so like any of the evidence that the NYPD says they have has not been released. Also, we've discovered that they utilized facial recognition in the seizing of my apartment and finding out and verifying who I am. 
I also found out that they contacted other cities that I've lived in previously to check out their CCTVs as well as to verify if I had any pending warrants or anything like that. I know we haven't actually discussed it yet, but I think it is important to mention that and I know you can't discuss it, but the alleged crime, I guess, is that you two months ago screamed in an officer's ear with a, a bullhorn and caused hearing damage. And yeah, I can't wait for my lawyer to attack this case, and I can't wait for it to come public and what that officer actually did to me that day. And I'll leave it at that. Okay, fair enough. How did it make you feel to have 200 of your comrades show up to defend you and to basically ward off SWAT teams, hostage yeah. negotiation teams, drones, as you mentioned. I mean, that was very um, overwhelming and it made me feel, made me feel good. It made me feel like, wow, some of these people care about me. Some of these people that have never met me, I have people like on my street now that are like, that wave at me and say, support, support uh, Warriors of the Garden, which is cool. But yeah, having community show up for you and it almost like rejuvenated me and a lot of people within the movement on why we started this in the mm -hmm. beginning in the first place. It's heartwarming. It's encouraging. Was there ever a time, do you reck, while all this is playing out on that Friday, August the 7th, did you ever question what you've been doing for the few months and years prior? Never crossed my mind. Not once. What effect do you think this incident had, not just for your, your group, the Warriors, but also BLM as a whole in New York. What effect do you think that this incident has had to kind of galvanize? Time will tell. I'm not 100% sure yet. My fear is that like what happened to me will happen to somebody that doesn't necessarily have a platform and people won't view it or, or talk about it. Hopefully that my call to action and subsequent actions after the incident will encourage people to unite, be more collaborative, share information, knowledge, as well as resources, um, align on demands and, and things of that nature. To get into that, actually, because I, I really wanted to discuss that video. For people who haven't seen it yet, you put out a call where you're kind of standing on a roof in Manhattan. You, you did the emotional recount of what exactly happened to you, and then you went through the demands that you have for the NYPD. Can you walk me through some of those demands and kind of what you hope to achieve through that call to unity? One of the main demands is for us to have Commissioner Shea immediately resign. Mm -hmm. I think that is more of something that, that needs to be done based on the incident, but I don't know if it'll necessarily help our movement long-term, but I think it would be a, a short-term victory for us. And then also we need to look at making police commissioner an electable position as well mm -hmm. um, because it's appointed. So that's our, that's one of our most attainable calls to action in terms of my, my press statement. You also mentioned cutting the budget in half in a true way rather than the way that it was done recently at the, the, the budget meeting that happened at the end of June. Can you kind of explain, I guess, what the issue would be with the budget cut that happened? Because I know that people were demanding that they cut at least $1 billion. City Council said that they accomplished that, and there's been obviously debate about whether or not that is true. Yeah, it's an imperative. Based on what happened to me and knowing like how expensive it was for them to utilize all of those toys just to try to intimidate one nonviolent protester, it would be imperative for us to look at the budgetary constraints of the NYPD. Also, in reallocating those funds to 
communities and to social programs within those communities that need it the most. We all know that the safest communities and the most thriving communities don't have the most police, but they have the most social programs. They have the most access to resources. So that's, that's, that's why we made that demand as well. Mm-hmm. We think we need to take a new approach to policing. Um, Wars in the Garden doesn't believe completely in abolishing police, mm-hmm. but we do believe in restructuring police, not just reforming, but completely changing how we view policing here in New York City as well as America. And we think that is an all-encompassing approach. If you look at a lot of the police statistics, why people are arrested, it involves mental health and, and drug abuse. We think individualizing those things and taking that responsibility away from police officers is going to be vital in helping heal our communities. You know, these calls for unity, we've been out with the protests since early June, and um, we've heard it a lot. Obviously, you have a larger platform. So how do you bring everyone together to unify for these one or two events a day as opposed to three or four that are spread out in different locations? I think communication is key. Also, we're contemplating now some sort, some type of summit with other group leadership where we can meet and discuss and align on those demands as well as um, upcoming events and what we plan on doing in the months coming forward. I think it's going to be crucial, especially once the fall and winter comes, that we have to be more, more selective about the type of events, the type of demonstrations. And right now, for me personally, uh, especially having lupus, like, I'm just selective about the events I attend. If it's not a community building event or something that is different or has a specific call to action in terms of legislative policy, then I don't really necessarily see the point right now. Just having a march for police brutality to me, um, unless we're specifically calling for something, is a waste of resources, time, and effort. Think having those conversations with other group leaders in a summit in a forum where we can discuss progress and what our goals are for, let's say, September. I think that's the, the best type of format because Warriors in the Garden, just we do get a lot of uh, the media coverage and media attention, and we don't want that to intimidate other groups or for other groups to think that we're trying to necessarily take over the movement or be in charge of it. So we want to have some type of format where we can have an, a discussion, an open discussion that doesn't turn into debate. So that's something that we're personally working on as well. How do you bring those smaller groups into the tent? The groups like Unlearning Racism together, groups that do teach-ins and things like that. Those groups, like not to sound cocky, they look to us. They message us all the time. They've been messaging us. They want to know what next steps are. What do we do? What's Derek doing? What's his statement? How does he feel? Like, And it's not necessarily vice versa like some of these groups that have two or three people we don't necessarily come to them knowing you know questioning what their logistical plans are and maybe that's that's something that we need to work on as well as getting their opinions and seeing you know how we all can align as well so yeah a lot of people have been looking to us so it hasn't been like difficult for us to try to create some type of coalition or um, call to action or summit it's trying to get all of us within this coalition to align and agree, which is going to be the difficult part because, well, you know how liberals and it's a process. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. As we speak, the 
Democratic National Convention is is kind of going on in the background, and that is the perfect example of exactly what you're talking about. It's scary. It's scary. Yeah. It's scary. I'm scared that Trump might win again, just based on life lived and like how unenthused some people are based on mm-hmm. Joe Biden plus the Kamala Harris pick. I think there's a good chance that Trump might win again, which is scary. People don't seem enthused. Just on that topic quickly where do the warriors and yourself stand as far as the nomination of kamala harris as the vice president i mean i think it's a historic nomination everybody in our group thinks that but i've said this and several people in my group have said this is like she's to me like almost she could be a nightmare for some black people because um and other people of color because she's a a black body and black bodies have been vilified for so long, but for white liberals who thrive in identity politics, she is a vessel and she's a moderate vessel. You know what I mean? So people that are hung up on getting a woman or a woman of color and not about policy, she's the perfect vessel to bring in moderate politics because she's a progressive choice in terms of identity, but not necessarily in terms of policy. Yeah, I think the phrase I've seen recently get passed around a lot is um, skinship ain't kinship. Yeah. <laughs> I think is is a very interesting and catchy way to kind of just distill that idea. We've, because... uh, yeah, we've, we've lived through that already. Like, mm-hmm. we've, we've done that where, you know, we just wanted to have, rep, you know, representation. And she is highly qualified. I mean, she really is in terms of on paper, but... In terms of, of policy decisions, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I really, we'll see how, we'll, yeah. we'll see how progressive their, their platform is. We'll see how Bernie can, can push, how far left Bernie and a lot of others can push them. But yeah, it was a disappointing choice. Mm-hmm. And it's more disappointing because I'm sure that Joe Biden will be a one-term president if he does become president. And she's going to be the presumed nominee for the next eight years after that. And that's that's too many years of my life um, to have somebody like that in office. And, I, and if she, I don't believe a progressive challenger would win against her. Would you prefer to have Trump play out another four years? No, no, no thanks. <laughs> um, I think that's that questioning, that theory, that idea comes from a place of privilege, to be honest. That's fair. If a black person, a queer person, a trans person, uh, a queer person in the military, that's not even like a question, a thought. Like, if you're a black person that got tear gas outside of the White House, like, this stuff isn't like, what if Trump, you know, that's not even a thought to people that right. are struggling right now. Or if you're, you know, a, a Latin person or somebody, not even Latin, there's, there's people, you know, from Haiti that might not necessarily be here with the right papers or have family members that are here undocumented. With that question, we know the answer to that question because yep. it's affecting our everyday lives. So, If Trump were to get reelected in the vein of that unity call that you had, where where would you see the next phase of this movement going? I had a conversation with somebody, um, a, a local protester, Griff, about like, just if it was like too close to call based on like the mail-in voting mm-hmm. and all that stuff, and if Trump like, if pushback about the election results i really believe there would be like some form of like anarchy and like i'd be scared like could you imagine the streets of like dc 
or Oakland or something like if Trump refused to leave office because the votes were too close. Yeah. I don't know how we would navigate that as a society. Um, one one thing about the Republican Party is they, they are really good at coalescing. They're really good at galvanizing. They fall in line, even if it's behind corporatist capitalist pigs. Like they realize, okay, Tea Party was good, but we don't have the numbers. We're gonna have to fall behind Mitt Romney. We're gonna have to fall behind this individual. Um, because they have the money and they have the leverage. Democrats don't do that. They'd rather not vote for morality reasons. Like, Republicans always vote. They show up. So I think voter suppression and not galvanizing our base um, would be the reason that um, Democrats end up losing. And us not thinking long-term, like, this census is a big deal. 10-year plan, like, redistricting like governorships we don't i don't think we think like that everything from councilships to like small like da's to state senators we have to think about that we need to we need to run in states and put money in states that we can't that we don't think we can win in we more research has to be done on the democratic i mean the um, demographic shifts in this country because republicans have done that if we can win Texas or Georgia, it'll completely change the electoral map. And we've, we've always attacked the electoral college and wanted to change it. I don't think that's going to happen. We have to utilize the demographic shifts within this nation to try to mold a new electoral college to, to our benefit. So coming up with long-term, like 15, 20-year strategies on how we're going to change policy, change the world, change the Supreme Court and align on those is something that Democratic leadership needs to focus on. So, yeah. Direct, can we talk a little bit about you? You know, obviously you're an activist. You're... Something like that. Very, very... Uh, <laughs> You have a large platform, co-founder of Warriors, which is a big group here in New York City. Can we talk a little bit more about you as a human? I, I know you're really into the paleo diet. Your fitness is very important to you. You had a weight loss journey. You deal with lupus. Can we talk a little bit more about DREC when he's not activist? <laughs> born, born in Hawaii, lived there for seven years. Parents met in the military. They're both Caribbean. Um, traveled a lot growing up. Most of my family is in St. Louis, Atlanta, and Miami. I have always been low-key. Like, not even low-key. It's, it's, I've always been an activist. Like, and I didn't realize it. Like, I was editor of my middle school paper, editor of my high school paper. For Halloween, like, growing up, I was Thurgood Marshall. <laughs> I'm sorry, what age were you? Third. <laughs> Literally had the glasses, like the robe, like there's pictures out there. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, so like I've always been that way. I was a wrestler in high school. I was one of three black wrestlers on a team of about 30 people. And every time we won, we put up the black power fist because we were at like an elite all white high school. Um, and that was a big deal. I campaigned my high school when I was 16 to start acknowledging Black History Month, which is, like, a huge deal for me. So I've been doing this shit, like, I didn't realize it, but, like, I've always been, like, that kind of person. And I've always had to be okay with being very Black, very pro-Black, and loving myself and my skin color in very white spaces. 
And that always has been normal to me because I didn't grow up in all black spaces. So I've always had to stand up for myself in terms of representation, in terms of getting what I want, um, navigating society. As a black man, I, I felt like I had to learn. I already know different languages, but like even within lang um, English, I felt like I had to learn how to navigate like intelligently, like white speak. You know what I mean? Like as a black person, I say this a lot, like I have to learn how to speak to white people. I have to learn white customs. I have to learn the colonial mindset. You as a white person, you don't necessarily have to learn how to navigate relationships with black people to be mm -hmm. successful. But I have to learn how to navigate relationships with you. Um, and that's something that I learned at a very, a very young age. So, yeah. That lesson never seems easy. It never seems like there's a right. course in how to talk to white people and, and kind of acclimate to that culture. It seems like someone has a hard experience learning it. It's this theory called code switching. I, I speak to my friends and, and use African-American vernacular and how I normally speak one way and then I talk this way and to other white people like I'm talking to you now mm -hmm. in interviews in a way that is more palatable to you and more yeah. understand. Because you're thinking about the public perception. Exactly. Yeah. One thing I did want to ask you about is you just recently posted a GoFundMe for yeah. housing and security and your legal team. Can you tell me about that GoFundMe? Yeah. So, so we have several people in our group, two that are homeless. Um, one was kicked out due to protesting another i don't even know their situation but they're homeless like sleeping in hostels couch surfing type of thing um and then we have other people in our group that especially after what happened to me they're scared because they've been being they've been surveilled just like me but i live alone or lived alone and they live with like grandparents or they live with their parents and their three-year-old cousin and they don't want to put them at risk so we would rather be in a safe and secure space that has security or cameras where we can work and have a workspace and that we can focus 100% on warriors because we know that due to COVID, like it's given us the, the, one of the things that we say is like, it's given us the privilege to put in 30, 50 hours a week on something that we're passionate about. But like prior to COVID, I know I wouldn't have been able to do that. I, most of us wouldn't have been able right. to. Right. So we want to use this time for us to kind of like have a communal living space where we can just focus on our work. Some of us are students um, and school's not going back in session or it's going back part-time and digitally. So right. we're able to dedicate ourselves to this. And that's something that the space would grant, grant us as well as solace. Because a lot of us are scared in our living situation or some of us are at risk um, with our living situation. Also, so many people in our group have been physically hurt, surveilled, intimidated by police, followed home by police. There's somebody in our group that has an unmarked car that's just been sitting outside of their apartment, follows them to the grocery store, and the cop doesn't even say anything the whole time. So that's just levels of intimidation. And we feel like if we were all together, that we would feel more safe. Same thing with our legal funds. So many of us, some people in our group have pending visas and other statuses and have been targeted by police. Some of us have been, you know, there's been alleged incidents and accusations made against us, like with me. And so we kind of want to insulate ourselves a little bit so we can focus on our work and not always have to depend on one-off outside resources. Like somebody saying that you can crash on their couch for a week. Like that's still, that's still a level of anxiety because what, what happens after that? Most of, I feel like a lot of the activists have had like individual GoFundMes 
you know, maybe yeah. just raising like 1500 here or something just to pay rent. I know John from the Warriors recently had one, and he was also a person who was recently attacked as well. But uh, this one is, is certainly a step up because you're talking about housing and, you know, an illegal defense fund, and those costs obviously go up. And so the this is so far this is the biggest GoFundMe I've seen personally involved in this movement because I think the goal is one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Can you kind of walk me through like I guess like the specifics on like how you reached that number? Yeah. So I my expertise is property development, real estate marketing, and I've been director of communications in almost every um, territory within the U.S for high-end luxury property developers, as well as low-end. My specific specialty within that has been student housing within New York City, Vermont, New Hampshire, all that stuff. So I'm very in, in tune with pricing in terms of housing. In fact, like being able to find deals. Um, I also know how horrible the market is right now for housing due to COVID, um, as well as just the stock market. Um, so I, I've been able to foster those relationships, look at places, look at housing, and I, I know the possibility to get something, everything from deposits, background checks, cost per square foot. I'm your guy for that type of stuff. In terms of a legal fund, we talked to several different lawyers. We've had, we've talked about people working with us pro bono, but we, we wanted to set up a whole team internally that would be able to help us so we don't have to depend on public defenders. And we've got numbers from several different lawyers and people that could that would dedicate their time and efforts just to defending us. So we combine those two those two uh, prices and quotes, and that's how we came up with that number. How long do you see? Uh, I guess that lasting. That um, anywhere between eighteen to twenty four months. Okay. okay. Last question, and and thank you so much for taking the time. I'll, I'll make it quick. What kind of contact have you had with the organizers of BLM? Some of their leadership has reached out. In terms of collaborating with them, no, we just see ourselves as contingent, like just a small faction uh, off of, of the Black Lives Matter movement and the organization. We don't consider ourselves a part of them, but we try to align with them on several different issues. Um, and we're, we're in talks with them um, in terms of creating our demands politically. But that's as far as our relationship is with, with Black Lives Matter. Um, we have a closer relationship with Black Lives Matter Greater New York, they've been reaching out to us almost on a daily basis, checking in on like just me, our group, wanting to train us on like security, sharing resources. They've been great. Hawk and Shavana have been um, reaching out. Yep. And you'll hear them on, if not the same episode, uh, the next episode of the podcast. So we'll let you go now, Direct. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah. I just want to show you my face so that you don't think I'm anonymous. I'm going to hold my breath. I mean, <laughs> Oh, handsome guy. <laughs> thank you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Whoa. Um, okay, guys. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, you, thank D-Rex. You. Have a great day. Thank you so much for listening to our first official episode, and thanks again to D-Rex for joining us today. If you have any feedback, questions, or news tips, email us at nycprotestcoverage at gmail.com, and please leave a five-star review. Follow us on Instagram at nycprotestcoverage for striking photos, videos, live streams, and news. Make sure you're subscribed to hear next week's episode, which will be with Hawk and Shivana Newsom, two leaders of Black Lives Matter Greater New York. We discussed how the protests have evolved from three people on a bridge into a worldwide movement, the specific hurdles to achieving black liberation in a Trump or Biden administration, how to deal with a lull in protests, and more. Truly, this episode was so good, we split it into two parts. Check back next Tuesday to hear the first part, and then the following Tuesday to hear the second. 
A quick note before we close out though, though you'll only hear from myself and Kevin in these first few episodes, NYC Purchase covers is a diverse, extraordinarily talented family of passionate photographers and videographers working incredibly hard to deliver the best coverage we can. Over time, you'll be hearing from more members of the team, but for now, I highly encourage you to check the show notes and follow each person. Okay, see you next time.